Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, how you doing? I'm, I'm a bit miffed that you doubted my ability to finish that, that swig of, of Gatorade before you tossed it to me. Here is my concern. My concern was that I would talk extra fast while you drank it because I'm a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I should be like, what do you think we of this? Gotta have it, we gotta have it worked out. We gotta be like, uh, we gotta be Casey McCall and Dan Rydell here from Sports Night. Are you already transitioning into uh, into the topic? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I have been watching a lot of Sports Night uh, lately. Uh, I just sort of accidentally started rewatching Sports Night. Like, I was watching Sports Center, which is an actual show, mm-hmm. and um, and it, something that happened. I don't know what it was, but it was like something that was like a very emotional type sports moment i was like i should watch that sports night pilot because that part at the end where the guy runs really fast you know yeah um i was like oh that's really good and then i watched it and then i just sort of kept watching it and now i'm like most of the way through the first season over the course of this week and so now i guess i'm committed to re-watching sports night which is not a problem yeah jen and i have been watching uh the west wing and we are now in uh Season seven, which is the last season, and uh, our old friend, the character Oliver Babish, shows back up, played by Oliver Platt. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big fan of Oliver Platt, and I'm just like, man, I so love his character. You know what I think I'm going to do? Go back to season two, <laughs> and I'm just going to start all over again. It's never going to stop. Yeah, that part where he smashes the tape recorder with the mallet. Pretty sweet. Pretty the big hammer. Stuff. Yeah. Um, um, anyway. Okay. Couple, with, couple things to get out of the way first. Sure, yeah. Let's okay. Uh, we don't want to. We don't want to hook the people yet. Exactly. Step one. Uh huh. Not step one. Thing one. Item one. Uh, so, friend of the show, Jason Eakin, uh-huh. has directed a film. It is a short film. It's called Reservations. Uh-huh. All right. It's about, it's about thirty minutes. It's about thirty minutes long, and it stars, among others, me. That's uh, Tyler. That's yes. Tyler talking. Yeah, me. The Tyler. next voice you hear will be Tyler's. Hello. Um. But yeah, so it stars uh, me and and uh, uh, not a f- not necessarily a friend of the show, but a blogger for the show. He hasn't been on, uh, but uh, Josh Long is also in it. And then uh, good guy, a good guy all around. And then a uh, 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 a good girl. See, you can't say that like that sounds inappropriate. You say like a good girl, like it yeah. has a certain. It sounds uh, a little condescending. It does, yeah. but uh, a great actress, uh, Stevie Potter. She's uh, she's in the film. It's her a name three... is Stevie. Her name is Stevie. It's Stephanie, but she goes by Stevie. That is oh, her okay. professional name. You might have seen her in Grey's Anatomy. Oh, I but... thought maybe I might have seen her on that TV show Sisters, where all the sisters had boys' names. Uh, I don't. You're, this isn't your TV podcast. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about Sisters. But Celia uh, Ward. Celia Ward was the lead. Of sisters, I'm going to say her character's name was Frankie, but if Frankie? it wasn't, it was probably something like that because that Fair was enough. one of the things about the sisters is that their dad had wanted boys and he kept getting girls, so he named all his girls boys' names. Nikki, is there a Nikki in there? Probably a Tony. Tony. Yeah. All right, but I know one of them was Frankie. Let's say it was Celia Ward. Fair enough. Okay, so uh... now we we've, we've been going doing this podcast for a while now. Yeah, at this point. It's not a lie to say we have thousands of people listening every week. That's true. You know, we're not in the tens of thousands. Right. We have thousands of people listening every week. Yeah. I I will be surprised if I get more than two emails or tweets telling me the name of Celia Ward's character on Sisters. I don't think that our audience is aware of Celia Ward's character's name on Sisters. I'm I'm vaguely aware that there was a show called Sisters. <laughs> uh, I thought I knew what you were talking about. Then I realized I was thinking of a show called Nurses, um, which is not the same. What was Nurses? Nurses was uh, that was like mid '90s, I think. Huh. And it was like a like a sitcom. I don't know how long it lasted, but my parents liked it. My mom liked it. Um, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Reservation. I'm sure Jason loves hearing this uh, <laughs> as we're pl- <laughs> as we're plugging his. Film. I'm sure Stevie loves hearing. Oh, absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, reservations. It's a comedy. Um, I'm not sure how much detail to go into uh, in the plot. But well, uh, as someone who had no involvement in yeah, it, yeah. But you recently watched it. Yeah, I, I'm going to say from an unbiased point of view because I don't care about hurting the feelings of Tyler or Jason. That's true. It is great. David thinks it's great. It, and uh, it, it's so great that I like Jason dropped it off to me mm. for for a reason. Yeah, I had to watch it. That, yeah, like uh, soon I watched it uh, with the, my lady friend. We watched it right away, mm-hmm. uh, and then I 
immediately called Jason. I was yeah. so elated by how good it was. And he answered the phone and he said, something wrong with the disc? <laughs> no, he, something very right. It didn't even occur to him yeah. that 32 minutes after he last saw me, I would have already seen it. Very exciting. And uh, you know what? I'm okay with saying the reason why you watched it, why he dropped it off to you, because it might be a selling point. Okay. Uh, David, Jason, and myself will be recording uh, commentary. There will be commentary for the show, uh, for the film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when you buy it on DVD, only $10, and you can buy it at the Battleship Pretension store. So head on over to the website, battleshippretension.com, click on the store link, and follow the, the links. Uh, you can buy it uh, through PayPal. And uh, like I said, it's only $10, and that includes shipping. So, oh, that's, yeah. That's uh, nice. So and, support and you get a Jason commentary and, by me, Jason, and uh, Tyler. And I, of course, had nothing to do with the movie, so I'll be sort of like, uh, I don't know, I'll be like Charlie Rose, I guess. That's exactly what you'll Meaning, be like. I'll, I'll be interrupting you guys a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be more interested in my question than in your answer to it. <laughs> Are you not? Uh, now, here's what I get out of that. I, uh, it sounds like you're not a fan of Charlie Rose. Man, I, you know what? When I was like... Junior high and young and early high school, and mm-hmm. I discovered Charlie Rose. I was fascinated, but I watched. I would stay up to watch it. Yeah, I'm such. A, I was not a popular kid, and these <laughs> might be the reasons. <laughs> I would stay up late to watch Charlie Rose. Um, but the, I guess, just the more I watch it, the more I get annoyed with him. And I don't know if it's I, I've changed or if he's just in his old age mm-hmm. become the the centerpiece of the show. Well, you he, know? I mean, I've, I, but he I've, still has great guests, like guests. Oh yeah. He consistently has people that I'm interested in. And I, you know, it makes me wonder because what I've seen of it, cause I've heard people say that Charlie Rose is like a great interviewer and all these, all these things. And I, I watch when I have watched his show, which is unfortunately not very often, but when I have watched it, I've usually enjoyed it. And it makes me wonder, I don't think he's really a great interviewer. I think, honestly, I think it's, he interviews people in the way you and I do, mm-hmm. which is it's more of a general discussion. Like he, right? He refuses to be just the guy asking the questions. Mm-hmm. He's more interested in just having a, you know, just actually talking to somebody. And in talking, maybe they'll actually say something that isn't a canned answer, and you'll get something more interesting out of it. But yes, in doing so, that means he's a much more active participant than people are perhaps uh, comfortable with. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, I haven't seen him in a long time. Maybe he's more active than he used to be. Yeah, I don't really watch him anymore either. So, but uh, yeah, so you can buy that at the, but, but not you can buy the, the complete Charlie Rose at BattleshipRetention dot com. I don't know how we snagged this, David. Um, <laughs> it's an exclusive. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can buy reservations at BattleshipRetention dot com, uh, and uh, yeah, you can. It's it is a very good movie. I'm very happy to have been a part of it, um, and uh, yeah, it would really. I, I know that. It'd be really great to uh, support Jason in his filmmaking endeavors. I know he would appreciate it, and you get something out of it. It is a very, it's a very enjoyable film. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, David, sounds to me like you got some questions. It doesn't sound to me like that. <laughs> no, this uh, is based on something we said before we started recording. recording. Does, it sounds to me, but not to necessarily the listener. Okay. What do you got? What's your beef? Okay. Now, I have not seen the new Anton Corbin film, The American. Okay. Yeah. But I'm very excited about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anton Corbin, of course, made Control, which – did you see Control? I didn't. Uh, oh, okay. If I'm not mistaken, you weren't a huge fan of it. Oh, I loved correct? it. Who I don't know who you because I loved it. Okay. Uh, and I think you would love it even – I mean, you like Joy Division. I know you're not like the world's biggest Joy Division fan, but you have liked their music. Yeah, yeah. Right? I'd say that's fair. Uh, yeah, but you don't have to be a fan mm-hmm. at all. To uh, to enjoy Control, it's a, it's a great film. So you know what, Control with a K is the one you don't like. Oh is that yes, correct? the Nim- okay. uh, Nimrod and Tal. Yeah, film. yeah. I did not like that film. Okay. No. Uh, but the other Control, the one about yes, okay, fair enough. The one that's in English. Yes. That's not why I liked it better, but uh, that's what I'm taking from this. The one that's in black and white. How's that? Whoa! See, uh, I don't know what to think. See, now. one's in color, but Hungarian, and one's in black and white, but English. You know what? But it's not, I'm not English. Gonna... Uh, it's not American. Yeah, it's English. English. You know what? I'm not watching either one of them. I'm just. <laughs> I just don't want to even uh, be a part of it. Okay, so I'm very excited about the the American. I haven't seen mm-hmm. it yet. Um, and it's getting among people I know who have seen it, yeah, and among critics that I like, mm-hmm. it, it's getting uh, very good reviews. Mm-hmm. Tuesday at work, I overhear one of my coworkers, a couple desks over, mm-hmm. uh, not a, I mean a person that I'm, I'm 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 friendly with everyone at work, yeah. Um, as hard as that is, I'm friendly with everyone that I work with, yeah. <laughs> um, 
but I hear this woman talking about, uh, we saw that stupid new George Clooney movie this weekend. Yeah. And she just, I, I like, I just sort of stopped what I was doing. I was listening to her and I was getting so annoyed. Yeah. Cause I about was, a movie you haven't seen. A movie should I be haven't noted. seen. Yeah. But just the way that she was talking about it, mm-hmm. she clearly had no idea who Anton Corbin was. She had done no research on the movie going in. She just knew that it was George Clooney, mm-hmm. and maybe she had seen a TV spot for him. Right, right. Am I wrong to be annoyed? Hmm. It's it's an interesting question because I've I've run across that a great deal. I mean, you and I have both worked at video stores. We both worked at movie theaters. So you're going to run across an opinion that, not to sound condescending or anything, but a, an opinion that isn't completely informed mm-hmm. um, or a, com- perhaps completely educated. It's just people that like movies, and there's nothing wrong with that. But um, but you're going to run across an opinion of someone who just – they just wanted to go see a movie. That's all. You know, and they this one looked looked good, and why not? Mm-hmm. And it turns out to not be what they want it to be. And so, of course, it bothers me that people require a film to be what they want rather than try to adapt to the film. But that's my own personal uh, opinion. After, for me, when it's been when I've overheard stuff in a video store, for the most part, unless unless it's some unless somebody's saying it to me directly, if it's something I'm just overhearing. I usually do get that sting of like, ah, that's such a frustrating opinion, and then I just stay out of it because it's just like, I, yeah, I, I, I can't I win this. Stay out of it, yeah. But you're asking if you have a right to be annoyed. I just, yeah, because uh, you and I and the people listening to the show, mm-hmm. um, we watch generally we watch and think of film correctly mm-hmm. as an art, yeah, as a form of expression, yeah. Uh, Made by artists. Mm. And a lot of people, that never crosses their mind. Right. And that says something about... I think that says something about... Okay. I've I've logically made peace with the idea that someone who doesn't have good taste can still be intelligent. Yep. I know that that's true, but I still have a hard time convincing my myself mm. in my heart, you mm. know? I want to call people dumb when they, you know, yeah. uh, can't wait for the Rascal Flats concert or whatever, even though Ugh. they're clearly intelligent people. Um, David, life is a highway. I want to write it. Okay, never mind. Go um, on. I know uh, they didn't write that song, by the yeah, way. Yeah, um, but uh, what was I going to say? But don't you just – a part of me just wishes that film could be an, an esoteric thing that only people who were into it <laughs> were – Aware of, but then almost when I think about that f- nightmare world for a second, yeah. I realized that it, we would uh, just have just further and further pretension. Exactly, in film. The, and you wouldn't it wouldn't be funded well enough to have. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, uh, as much as I hate most big blockbuster movies, mm-hmm. we occasionally get a Toy Story three, you know, yeah, or an Avatar, which I really liked, you know, for all its. I mean, it it, it has faults, and I feel like I've gotten so. This is off topic, but I've gotten so used to having to defend Avatar before, yeah, uh, uh, to, to like be on the defensive before, before just talking about how much I liked it, mm-hmm. that I'm undercutting how much I really did like Avatar. Yeah, yeah. It just like, I need to be so- somewhat conciliatory. Let's split yeah. the difference and say I liked it. Yeah, um, but I mean, I saw it again. I don't know if I've talked, because it's been... It's you mentioned that the you saw it again, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's I, I really, really like that movie. Anyway, agree to disagree. No, you know what? I agree that you liked the movie. I, I don't know why I said I disagree. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's yeah. It, it's almost like com- like in a way, you almost wish movies were more like comic books. If somebody doesn't like a comic book, they simply won't read it, and that's the end of it. They won't read a comic book. Whereas everyone, for the most part, I don't want to overgeneralize, but for the most part, everyone sees movies. Mm-hmm. It, they might not see the same movies I see. But that doesn't preclude them from having an opinion about the movies that I see. Um, whereas, and so with comic books, everyone, you might not agree with them, but it's like, well, at least they've read something. At least they're they're into this, as you said, a very esoteric thing. But yeah, if it was going to be that, then the debate would just change. And then you would wind up looking down on the people that 
don't love German expressionist silent film, you know, and they, mm-hmm. oh, they prefer Italian neorealism. Come on, <laughs> you know, whatever Philistine, pe- <laughs> whatever peasant. Yeah. Uh. And so let me just get my monocle in place. And so it's uh, it's really. Yeah, it, it's just something that I think by all means you have a right to be angry, just as uh, I'm sure somebody who, you know, studied medicine Overhear someone talking about like a purely holistic thing that has no medicinal properties, but they say, you know what, I just do this, I just take this, um, and someone who studied medicine would just be like, oh, that's really frustrating. Um, but the thing is, with this particular yeah situation, I can't like okay, people at my work mm. that aren't super into movies, there are some that really liked Inception, and I really didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sound like a troll, but. I've yeah. been able to have a conversation with them because yeah. they understand the playing field. Yeah. But my problem with this woman's reaction to the American mm-hmm. is something that she couldn't even relate to. Like, yeah. Uh, like, because I can't say, like, look, I haven't seen the film, but you clearly don't know what you're talking about. Right. Because in her mind, she's just going to hear, well, you haven't seen the movie. What do you you right. don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, no, I want to be like, no, that's not what I'm arguing. I'm having the yeah. argument in my head right now. And by the way, I like this woman a lot. She's a, okay, she's a, fair really, enough. She's a wonderful woman. I just, uh, yeah, uh, you know, the, uh, I just still have, uh, as much as I am out there in the office workaday mm-hmm. world with the norms, um, <laughs> I, I, I still can't let go of my, my snobbishness. Well, I mean, you'll run across that with anything. I mean, any kind of belief you hold that somebody else doesn't hold, you m- you may for one moment just have a little flash of just like idiot, <laughs> heathen, whatever you want to say. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, the thing that would probably bother me more if I was in your situation is less, less her opinion and the fact that than the fact that uh, she has no qualms about spreading this opinion. <laughs> you know, like she's going to walk around, and to most people, her opinion is going to mean. Just as much as, like, so let's say you did see the American, the American, you loved it. Mm-hmm. It's just two opinions now, and she's probably going to be louder. And yeah. um, that's this. This uh, our conversation probably now has taken a certain turn that is probably turning some people off um, and being like, "Oh, those two bourgeois guys." But it's just uh, I, it's I, a concern I, I, that I have sometimes. That's our listenership. I think is just is mostly the people, the, the kind of people that we are. You'd think so. Well, no, this is the same thing you're talking about. One, yeah. One's more vocal. Like, we tend to hear from the people who don't agree with us, and that's fine, by that's the way. That's true. That's fine. Yeah. I mentioned Sports Night earlier. Yeah. Did I? You mentioned Sports Night, yeah. Okay, because we started this podcast and then deleted the first part, and I can't remember which one I mentioned Sports Night on. I think you mentioned it in this one, yes. Um, And there's a line in the first season that Isaac has, um, if you're dumb, surround yourself with smart people. If you're smart, surround yourself with smart people who disagree with you. Hmm. So... The people who do disagree with us, I don't want to uh, – please keep disagreeing with us. I, yeah, yeah. I like it. Don't, yeah. uh, um, but I'm saying I think the majority of our audience just is silently as snobbish as we are. Exactly. And that's why they listen because we we give voice to their snobbishness <laughs> and they're like, oh, thank God somebody's saying it so that I don't come off like the asshole that these guys come off right. as. Um, but no, in, in response to the basic question that you asked, I think uh, of course you have a right to get – angry provided of course you don't let that inform how you treat this woman right. in the future um and uh, uh like uh, like i said the the frustration comes not from the fact it, it comes frustration comes from the fact that i couldn't even have the conversation with her about why i think she's wrong right because the first thing she'll jump to is well you haven't seen if when you see it Bec- you'll you'll agree with me yeah because there's, it's one thing to dis- disagree with the person about whether or not a movie's good mm. but to disagree with a person about the way one views a movie is only a, the kind of kind of conversation that two people who already care about movies can have. <laughs> that's true, and that's the kind of conversation we're going to have today. Yes, um, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Uh, two years ago, you and I, um, along with uh, our friend Manuel, yeah, I've talked to Manuel in a while. I yeah, is he still in town? I think he's around. Oh, all right. I don't know. Um, <laughs> we went uh, to Santa Monica and we saw Los Angeles plays itself. Tom mm-hmm. Anderson's uh, film. I hesitate to even call it a documentary. It's a it's a video essay. I think. Yeah, I'd say that's yeah um, about the way that Los Angeles has been portrayed in film. Mm-hmm. And we were inspired two years ago to do an episode based on 
location, the importance yeah, the, the of importance location of a, of a city or whatever, yeah. or setting more specifically. Yeah. Yes. Um, but that's only part of what Los Angeles plays itself is about. I yeah. saw it again on Sunday night. Yeah. Um, Making it the fourth time you've third. seen it. Third. third. Okay. Yeah. Um, I saw it again on Sunday night and started thinking about a, a, a deeper thing that he talks about a lot. Um, he talks about literalism and whether or not a film has a responsibility to represent the place that it takes place realistically. Yeah. You know, and he even says, like, on the one hand, why should it? Because once you put a, a real place in a fictional film, it becomes a fictional place. Yeah, in yeah. The film. So why should the land, the, the geography match right. what it actually is in real life? Now, we're, gonna, we're not going to get so specific as to simply talk about geographic literalism. Right. Um, but it just got me thinking about to what degree does a film have uh, a responsibility to reflect reality? Yeah. Um, and, uh, I'm interested to see what you, and of course no one's going to say yes or no, like it's not going to be, uh, a black and white kind of thing. Right. But I'm interested to see what you have to say as opposed to what I have to say because I do know that in the past, you and I have, uh, when it comes to a specific movie, um, I think you and I have, have disagreed about because... Well, let's talk about this movie. Let's start with it. Well, something like... Okay, well, I'll jump to like, for example, a Mulholland Drive or uh-huh. something like that where for me, there were, I had a lot of issues with it, but uh, that and... We mentioned uh, last week stuff like um, Breakfast of Champions or anything that was that was incredibly stylized, and I didn't have anything real to latch on to. Um, and sometimes the real thing mm-hmm. um, can be a character's attitude or dialogue or whatever. Um, another example is, excuse me, um, Matrix Reloaded, uh-huh. which you love. Yeah, I'd or re- you would just love. Yeah, okay. I, I know. I, I'm going to get way more responses about the fact that I love the Matrix Reloaded than I am about to see the Ward's characters' name and sisters. <laughs> uh, but it's well. What about Revolutions? It's not good. Okay, there we go. <laughs> um, it's in you just fact, cut those emails in half. It's in fact really bad. Yeah. And it's um, really hard for me to admit that Matrix Revolutions is really bad, even though I've had seven years to do so. Mm-hmm. It, it's really bad. And the thing that gets me is that, uh, like, I don't, I don't care for Matrix Reloaded. Of course, there's sequences in it that are amazing, uh-huh. but for me, I need something real to latch onto. And in the first Matrix, what I had was Neo's sense of awe, wonder, and confusion, mm-hmm. which is what anyone would feel. Well, but of course, by the time the second one rolls around, that's absent. The only thing. Like, the only characters involved are the ones who are, they are, at this point, they're already used to all of this. Mm-hmm. And so, there's, so, I'm still not used to this, and new things are happening now. And so, I have no idea, I, I can't latch on to anything. So, for me, well, the... This actually brings me to something. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Um, I think, and this might be the reason that I uh, just, in general, tend to respond to action movies more than you do. Mm. Um. And speaking of getting things uh, tweeted at me, someone asked me this week, because I guess a phrase that I – or a term that I use mm-hmm. uh, occasionally is formalist. And someone tweeted me what I – asked me asked me what I meant by that. Okay, go ahead. And I think when a piece of art, and in this case, a film, that's all we talk about on this uh, – and television. Yeah, you, uh, we talk about everything. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, a film is formalist if its structure or form – is more important than its content. I'd say that's about so something like uh, like a Public Enemies. Public Enemies is a great example, and okay. it's a film that uh, ten years ago I wouldn't have liked as much for two reasons. Right. Um, one because ten years ago I just wasn't as uh, I didn't have the film. I wasn't as sophisticated sophisticated a film watcher. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't know as much to recognize the formalist elements of public enemies yeah but also 10 years ago i tended to respond more emotionally to films than i do uh, now and i thought i I, i'm still able to you've killed your emotions quite. i'm still able to respond emotionally Um, okay 
what I'm, I was less able 10 years ago to respond on a purely intellectual level. Okay, yeah. Um, and my um, and my appreciation of action films has changed in, a, in, in the same way in the past, I'd say, 15 years, maybe longer, mm-hmm. you know, uh, from just the sort of visceral uh, elements or, to a certain extent, bloodlust is something that you have more as a teenager. And I'm not going to lie, those things yeah, yeah. still exist in me. I still like... Oh, you don't have to tell me. But I think the reason that Matrix Reloaded, that I respond so well to it, is just from uh, a formalist mm. uh, point of view as an action film. Yeah. I... I, I'm I'm just thinking about the way uh, things are being presented to me. Yeah, you know, um, my favorite scene in the movie is the uh, fight that Matrix has in the, the Matrix, <laughs> the fight that Neo has. Uh. I was I, I was looking at something. <laughs> that was not, I do not call the character Matrix. This is the Freud. scene where the where Matrix fights the bad yeah. guys. It was a fortunate slip. You guys can't see because someone just walked in and I, I was distracted. I don't okay. actually call. I've never called Neo Matrix before. <laughs> it was a fortunate slip. Ah, I'm so embarrassed. Um, but the part where Neo fights the uh, at the in the tea shop, yeah, when yeah. he fights that guy in order to get through to see the Oracle. Yeah. From a plot point of view, it makes no sense. Yeah. Um, it's just. Uh, it's almost. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's it's almost like very austere and like this is it's it's this time in the movie we have to have this fight with these characters who have no i like the thing i like about the scene is the characters have no emotional reason to be fighting each other they don't dislike each other they're not angry at each other they're just fighting on a it's a purely physical presentation now let me ask you this Uh could the word that describes it rather than austere which you would need to when we're off air you can tell me what that means because i've heard it i've pro- i probably knew what it meant at one time and then i then i no longer needed it for a vocab test in high school and i moved <laughs> on uh but the word i'm about to say has a sli- slightly negative connotation perfunctory no you that's say not that? what i mean by a, okay I mean, could it be a, could it work though um well, that's a completely different way of looking at the scene. I don't think it is perfunctory. <laughs> I don't think it is Especially either. Especially since, just, yeah. you know, seven minutes after that, you've got the brawl with all the yeah with all the Agent Smiths. You, they could have waited. Yeah, I think uh, they had a fight there simply for because this is a movie in which people fight. Yeah, it's almost like deconstructionist. <laughs> like, okay, there's no need for them to be fighting. All right, uh, it's just presented. The, the the fight is an end in itself, and it's, it sort of reminds me of something that um, uh, a more extreme version that Tom Anderson talks about in in Los Angeles plays itself is mm-hmm. the original Gone in sixty seconds. Oh, okay. Which is a film that has he he says it's a it's an uh, anti humanist masterpiece. It's not <laughs> about people; it's about machines in motion. Yeah, and there's no the there's there's as few people in the movie. As possible, and I find that I've, I, I, I really want. I, I've seen some of the original Garden of Sixty Seconds, but his description of it makes me want to watch it because I like this idea of what happens when you make art, which is supposed to speak and express truth about people and mm-hmm. to people. What if you make art where the people aren't important? It's almost as if um, I won't go through the whole uh, anecdote because we've told it before, but. If it's even true. But like with The Big Sleep. Uh-huh. Philip Marlowe walks in and a character is dead. Uh-huh. No, and, and of course the anecdote goes that nobody real the, the director, the writer, like nobody really knows who killed this guy. And who killed him doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. In a movie like this, in a story like this, thi- this character who can provide information or whatever it was is dead. This is what happens. A hero goes to get something from someone, and that person is dead. Yeah, that's I don't want to say that's that not happens. necessarily. Um, we're getting away from formalism now because that mm. doesn't have anything to do with the aesthetic. But I do think I think to a certain extent it has to do with the overall topic that we're talking about. Which right? Is, yeah. But I just wanted to yeah, yeah. For, for the listener out there who tweeted me who is not sure what formalism means. I want to make right, right. Okay, I want to make a distinction. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so and that's and I think this is this is. In discussing formalism, um, we can get into uh, – well, we can 
shoot off in a lot of different uh, in a lot of different directions. But uh, it's something that, as time has gone on, something being realistic is no longer important to me. In the sense of it needs a realism that ground that, that grounds it in our reality, because some mm-hmm. films don't take place in our in our reality, even if they're similar to our reality. Um, I, I, I think I don't think. I think you get in trouble probably as a filmmaker. I'm not a filmmaker, but mm-hmm. I think a filmmaker will get in trouble if he or she tries to stick too closely to realism. Mm-hmm. What I think a film needs is something recognizable, and, and it's, a, it's, okay. a, it's a thin distinction to make. Yeah. But to come back to Mulholland Drive, um, the way that people talk, mm-hmm. the way that things work in this version of the film industry or this version yeah. of Los Angeles uh, is not realist, realistic at all and not even recognizable. Right. But um, the very basic emotions, the confusion or the uh, uh, the sense of being lost or the sense of just being hopeful or being optimistic or being excited, mm-hmm. that's what's recognizable about the movie and that's what brings right. me into it. And I think, and here's where I, so I've got my little list here, and it's really just uh, something to relate to, uh, not relate to, refer to is what I meant to say. Um, because, for example, if, if you if you wind up requiring something, I think that's a very good distinction to make, is the difference between realistic and recognizable. Mm-hmm. Because if you insist on realism, there, there are in, in, there's an entire genre of movies, or several genre of, genres mm-hmm. of movies, that you will never enjoy, ever. Yeah. And one of them is German Expressionism. Um, I mentioned this, uh, I was talking about this with a friend of the show, Adam Rebitaro, who has uh, designed our last two live show posters, and he's a, he's a really great guy. And he, uh, yeah. we were talking about comic books, and, and I started talking about uh, uh, Batman Forever. As you know, I wrote a, I wrote a paper in college about uh-huh. the German Expressionism in Batman films. And yes, even Schumacher's got them. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, just because it's neon green doesn't mean it's yeah. it's not expressionism. And one of the things is, for example, where does Riddler's Lair come from? You know, d- did he have somebody build it? Uh-huh. <laughs> because people in the city know there's a criminal going around who's obsessed with a question with question marks. And so if you, if you have contractors coming in and just like, yeah, I'm just going to need question marks all over this building everywhere. <laughs> I need it. I need it literally. I need it punched out of the walls and lights. I need lots of question mark lights. <laughs> You're going to have to kill those contractors because they know who you are. Right. Uh, they know where the money's coming from. And it's one of those things where if you, if you inject, but that's the thing. It doesn't take place in this reality. It takes place in expressionistic reality where when the Riddler – I'm not bringing up the Riddler because I love the Riddler. But it's just – this is one of the first things that I thought of when I was younger because I had such a problem with it because I wanted it – I was using the logic of our reality uh-huh. and not expressionistic reality, which is the minute the Riddler exists, he has to have a lair. And so he does. And that's it. That's, that's as much logic as you can bring to it. Mm-hmm. You have to – meet the film where it is rather than require that it be in your world. It doesn't take place in our world. It takes place in the comic book world where the minute he is, so is his car, costume, lair, whatever you want to call it. Well, I'm going to talk about Inception again, but I'm not going to make fun of it, so don't get worried, people. Um, (laughs) But there's a discussion about in the dreams, they they build an open place and a person comes in and fills himself up with fills their their subconscious fills up the place that they've built yeah that's what an expressionist an expressionist film is that dream and oh, yeah whatever character is at the forefront whatever's inside his subconscious is filling the frame yeah i'd say yeah i'd say that's about right i mean stuff like and that's the thing is okay a movie like dick tracy which is kind of expressionistic yeah. and i remember a lot a lot of what i'm going to talk about comes with when I was younger, having a problem with a certain type of film because I was so hung up on it being realistic instead of, as David said, recognizable. Mm-hmm. And a good example is Dick Tracy. Uh-huh. I remember feeling bad for the bad guys because I was like, well, you know, I know they're criminals and everything. But frankly, if you had a prune face <laughs> or a flat top, 
you probably couldn't get a, a legit job. Like you wouldn't be hired to like maybe like a dock worker or something like that. Uh-huh. But like you're not going to be a salesperson if you you know if you've got this horrible face on you. And I remember just thinking like, so yeah, I mean it just makes sense that they would be criminals. Like I was uh-huh. I was looking at it from that point of view, and then I'm just like, so now I just feel bad when they all get shot. And uh, but then I re- as I got older, I realized no, much like the Riddler. They look that way because they're criminals. They look that way because they're criminals. That doesn't mean that they looked normal when they were normal and then they decided to become criminals and their physical form changed. They're just – they they both existed at exactly the same time. And it's just – Yeah, well, I mean – yeah, Pruneface doesn't have a childhood. That's not, exactly. That's not the point. You're not supposed to think of those things. And that's the thing is I, I, I kept insisting that the film conform to my reality. But then you have to also realize, yeah, what am I watching? Uh-huh. I'm watching a film based on a comic strip where, you know, there's lips manless. And I realize that in life people, uh, you know, they... Uh, there's deformities and stuff, but uh, <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that people don't look like prune face at some point, but, uh, you know, but it's just statistically this many people can't all hang out with each other. Right. Um, but yeah, and so just the and and it, it can be surprisingly freeing when you realize just like this I want to write a version of Dick Tracy where at the end he wakes up. In the burn ward of the hospital, <laughs> and he realizes that all his co-patients are the people who were in his dream. Um, that's not bad, but it's uh, but yeah, it's it's so it can be such a freeing thing when you just realize, oh, it's not trying to be like something that could happen on that I could see on the news. It's mm-hmm. it's something else. It takes place in a different world, and even though characters are still dressed in like suit and ties, suits and ties, it's not trying to be this. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's so much more freeing. And uh, yeah. but I'll, I'll talk about the flip side of that in a moment. Well, I guess we've been talking so much about uh, you know expressionism and, mm-hmm. and dream state films like Mulholland Drive. We should talk about films that actually are realistic. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, and there's a lot of them, and they're plenty good. You know, um, I'm not even sure who to go to. First, as as far as the the first one who leaps to mind for me always is Ken Loach. Okay, because um, that's I mean he's that's what he's he's doing in in his films, uh, and there's there's a look to them that has since I think been uh, P- Paul Greengrass is a person who has mm-hmm. borrowed this look to make less than realistic films, yeah, or to make less than realistic films more realistic, yeah, you know. Um, which I think is something that we, uh, we as a nation, were kind of craving in the in the two thousands. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why. I think maybe it's because our president in the two thousands was feeding us lies, uh, and we. Well, that's <laughs> we were, one theory. I think <laughs> we were aware of it. And we wanted uh, some truth, but anyway, I think maybe the, the hang on. There's another theory that maybe isn't quite so horrifying. Um, <laughs> Although, actually, probably still kind of horrifying, <laughs> which is because of something like a September 11th, uh, pure escapism was no longer possible. Uh-huh. It needed to seem as... It, it, it may have even been irresponsible. Yeah. Like or it, at least been seen that way. Yeah. I just... It needed to seem like something that could happen in our real life because mm-hmm. real life... We, we could no longer really just ignore real life anymore mm-hmm. um and so having an action hero like john mcclane who just and he was a much more down-to-earth action hero but just who just blows up everything and like action movies of like the 80s just couldn't happen at that time because yeah. there's collateral damage admittedly the film collateral damage did come out in the 2000s <laughs> but that's not what i'm talking about um but so yeah collater- what year did collateral damage come out 2002 they pushed it i believe but like it, it was made before september 11th i believe so yes okay um, but yeah, so that's that's. We're talking theory. about September 11th, yes, 2001, yeah. not the September 11th when we had our live show. Oh yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah, or not coming. I hope it went well. <laughs> I hope you were there. Indeed. That's all I care about. Yeah. I hope some of you were there. Uh, actually, I hope it went well and you were there. If it didn't go well, I'm glad you weren't. <laughs> um, Gotta think in yeah larger terms, David. Um. But yeah, I mean, Ken Loach is just a leaping off point. I mean, he's been making films for a long time. I'm more familiar with his films of the last 10 years or so, like The Navigators and Sweet 16. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. 
Um, did he make the wind that shakes the barley? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. If that people look at the wind that shakes the barley as the less realistic Ken Loach <laughs> film, when compared to most filmmakers out there, it would yeah, be yeah. seen as a gritty historical piece. But mm-hmm. uh, but because it's not sort of uh, uh, handheld, and I, I just think of the way that Paul Greengrass shoots everything. Mm-hmm. And if you're not familiar with Ken Loach, you can see that wh- who. You can see where he got it from, mm-hmm. where his influence. Not that Paul Greengrass is ripping him off. He's a right, right. He's a great filmmaker on his own. I mean, I discovered Paul Gre- Paul Greengrass like a lot of people through Sunday Bloody Sunday. Yeah, no, just Bloody Sunday. Right, Sunday Bloody Sunday is a U two song about the same event, and it's also a nineteen seventy one film with Peter Finch. I don't recall, but yes, there is a movie called that. Yeah. Okay. So, I think yeah, I think I knew that. Um, I think it's uh, an MGM title. Oh, okay, fair enough. I haven't seen it. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, Ken Loach, Paul Greengrass, um, I jumped Mike to Lee, Mike some Lee people is... who aren't British, I'm sure, too. But I think I think Altman can, in movies like Nashville and Shortcuts, uh, can approximate reality by, in my view, in by not insisting that the camera be involved. By standing outside. I uh, mean, people have said that some of his films are, are kind of... Ha- kind of keep the characters at at a distance, uh-huh. which many would say is the more honest way to do it, rather than try and insist that we sympathize with these characters. In some films, he's more content to just stand outside and we just look at them and and just watch them, and then whatever we decide to feel about them is what we decide. I, I think Altman falls somewhere in between the two, like mm-hmm. almost right in the middle of the two extremes. And, mm-hmm. Um. And this is not a condemnation of him. I think he makes largely unrealistic films. Mm-hmm. Like the things that happen in his movies are often kind of the things that happen in stories or in movies. Yeah. You know? But he presents them with such, I guess, from a formalist point of view, such a realistic aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, that you believe it, even yeah. though I mean, how many, how many movie executives have actually? murdered screenwriters you right know, and he's, although he's clearly enough, telling a, a genre story there yeah you yeah know? and yeah i mean he'll adapt to whatever the genre needs him to do but like those two movies specifically are the ones that i was that i was thinking of and and gosford park to a lesser extent that's um, also a genre i mean a lot very of these, much so I, and i but i also think i mean nashville is um it's it's not a i'm, try, I'm trying to think of the alternative of a movie that has a lot of people in it, but it's very gritty. Because Nashville's not... The things that happen in the movie are still kind of things that happen in a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is not a kind of... I mean, I don't right. like Nashville, but this is not the reason I don't like yeah, Nashville. Yeah. Um, it's just presented with a sort of you-are-there-ness yeah. uh, that, that makes it more realistic, and maybe that's the recognizable aspect. That's why... Yeah. Uh, you know, I think you know it's a great example of this in, in terms of Altman is Doctor T and the Women. Okay, yeah, which uh, is not a lot of people were surprised to find that it was Altman. You know, because mm-hmm. of what the story is. It's yeah, it's a uh, it's kind of a Hollywood comedy type of story. Type of story, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of course, it, it has some elements to it that are that are different, but it's not something that it would be completely un unthinkable for Penny Marshall to be directing. That's true, yes. You know? Uh but what makes and I I'm not a huge Altman fan, but I really like Doctor T and the Women and mm-hmm. it's his his approach to it is really what helps, you no. know, and um even a character like Andy Richter's character in the movie, you mm-hmm. know, who could be the exact same character and played by Andy Richter in the Penny Marshall movie oh, is yeah. the over-the-top comic relief. Oh, you mean the hair on her head. That's one of my favorite <laughs> lines in that film. Yeah. I'll let you guys Do- seek Dr. it out. Dr. T plays a gynecologist, so you can... Yeah. Or Dr. T. Richard Gere plays Dr. T. As yeah. I can't talk today. That's all right. Um, yeah, so Altman's a really interesting example for this discussion. Yeah. Because I don't think he's... Interested in verisimilitude, right? Right. He's I think just he, interested in, in you believing that you were actually there, whatever there is. Yeah, but but I do think I do think he's interested in it if that's what that particular movie requires, um, and will 
not be quite so stylized or sensationalistic. I'm thinking specifically of like shortcuts. But even that, some of the things in it uh-huh. are kind of strange and st- the kind of thing that happens, as you said, in stories. But the way he does it is really he's trying to mimic, I think, our reality yeah. so that we can relate to it. I, shortcuts, I can't. I don't like that movie. And I like the, the movie. This gives to my re- my actual yeah, reasons yeah. for not liking Altman. Okay. Is that he uh, condescends to all his characters, I think, in a, in a lot of his movies. And Shortcuts is one of the most egregious examples for me. Nashville as well. I think we, uh, yeah, I think we can talk about this uh, on another episode. But, okay. uh, but yeah, I, I would say that with Shortcuts especially, I would agree. Um, not necessarily that he condescends them so much as just hates them. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, I think here's the... The leeway that I'm willing to give a movie like Dick Tracy or uh, other examples that I have written here, like Sin City, uh, Kill Bill Volume 1, where it's clearly not supposed to be this. It's not Uh supposed to be the world we live in. The leeway that I'm willing to give those films, I am... The flip side of that coin is that films that are meant to take place in our reality, in this world that we all inhabit, Uh if they... If they engage in, like, something that is just – when you find yourself saying, like, no one would say that or no one Uh would react like that, that's when I start to give – that's – I'm just as merciless (laughs) as I ever was. Uh Um, A film, for example, and you haven't seen it, David, nor should you, is The Blind Side. Um, Oh, yeah. Something that, of course, is based on a true story. Uh Uh-huh. So if it's based on a true story and they're touting that, which they are, um, or which they did, uh, then – my feeling is that for the most part they should try to mimic our reality. But of course they, they don't, they have to have all these movie things in there that just don't mimic reality at all. As far as character types, dialogue and just general situations. Like the film understands that this woman is the is the main character, and thus everyone around her has to be dumber than her or generally less than her. And so there's a part where during a football game, the coach is making some bad calls, in her opinion, and just, in, I guess, in general he is. And so she decides, you know what? I'm going to call the coach. So she calls the coach, and he answers his cell phone, and she's, like, yelling at him. Wait, he's... Coaching the football game? Yeah. And he answers his cell phone? Yeah. Well, that guy has no business being a coach of anything. Yeah. So, in reality, he either wouldn't answer his phone or would be fired immediately. <laughs> One of those two things would happen yeah. in this reality. And it's stuff like that, that that bothers me so much and it takes me right out of a movie. Be- and it's because it it says that it, 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 says that it takes place here. Uh-huh. It's, it is focused on reality instead of recognizability you know um and so that's that's when i tend to be a little more insistent that if you're gonna do it you do it right yeah so that's the then i also have little miss sunshine and juno but we'll talk about those later this reminds me of another problem and i wish i could think of an example in film but my my head keeps going to lost okay the tv show okay um because sometimes something would happen in a flashback, you know, or, you know, off island mm-hmm. in the world that would be a little too convenient, you know, or just uh, a little too cliched. And people would roll their eyes and there was, always, there was always a certain subset of fans who'd be like, oh, what, you believe that there's an island where polar bears run around and stuff, yeah. but you don't believe this? What do you say to that? I have an answer. Well, maybe so, I should just talk instead of putting it on the spot. <laughs> well, I can. I can I, I'll sum up mine quickly. So something happens off island that's a little silly, uh-huh. um, and diehard fans of the show dismiss any criticism of that by talking about the larger silliness of the show. Yeah, silliness might be a reductive word, but anyway, <laughs> um, my answer is like, yeah, but we're not on the island yet. My answer is that uh, there's a reason that. The polar bears running on the island is interesting mm-hmm. because it takes place in our reality. Mm-hmm. That's that that's that's what's intriguing about the show. Yeah. That so it's it's okay to have unrealistic things take place mm-hmm. in our reality. Yeah. As long as our 
our reality is believable and the character's reaction is the way you would react. Yeah. The way you would actually react to, holy shit, there's a polar bear on this tropical island. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what Lost did well. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, I guess that gets to a larger point that I want to make is just because something is uh, presented as realistic doesn't mean that everything that happens in the movie has to be plausible. Right. Just the reactions to it mm-hmm. and the discussions about it have to have to be. And you know this is it's it's interesting this gets back to something as you know David one of my one of the most important things for me in any movie it's not the only thing of course is character and specifically di- act, character acting and specifically dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it's because if you have well-drawn believable characters you can put them in any situation and I will believe it. If you have them reacting the way people react to things, I'll believe it. Um, that's the importance of it. 28 days later. 28 there's, days there's later. There's a good example. Okay. Which was specifically shot by Anthony Dodd-Mantle on video mm. to look like, you know, there's a difference between when our minds are trained. When we see 35 millimeter film, we think mm. we don't think this is really happening. We think this is a movie. Right. When we see video because we've seen countless, you know, birthday parties or whatever exactly. shot yeah, yeah. on home video, handheld home video that... When we see 28 Days Later, our mind just sort of accepts it that way, mm. just sort of processes it that way. Yeah. And that's um, – what's great about 28 Days Later is it's not just um, – it's not just uh, the aesthetic mm-hmm. that's realistic against this crazy thing happening. Yeah. It's also the reactions of the characters. And, oh, yeah. You know, uh, Brendan Gleeson in that movie is – that's a real guy. Yeah. Completely. He's a real guy, and also the Killian Murphy's character's reactions to this because he like he wakes up in the middle of this, uh-huh. and when he goes to his parents' house and he sees them dead, and then he starts to reminisce. I mean, some people would say like, "Oh, you're in the middle of this of this zombie nightmare. Uh-huh. Like, why are you acting like this?" Because that's how people act when they when they immediately wake up. You know, if they wake up and realize that everything they once knew is done, and the people they loved are gone, like yeah. you would get a little. A little bit emotional, and <laughs> you might have a difficult time letting go. And and what would and it would slow you down, and it would be a, a hazard to you. So that's yeah, that's a really great example of a a somewhat outlandish concept being brought home both through the style and the and the content, mm-hmm. and just the the execution, just really selling it and making it seem as if it could happen in our in our reality. Yeah. Um, now, we should wrap up pretty soon. Yeah, we've got somewhere to be. Yeah. Um, but uh, I said early on that I would mention Sports Night. Okay. Later. Um, so, and, you know, you're watching The West Wing. So let's Sorkin talk, in general. Let's we can talk, talk about, about Aaron Sorkin. Okay. Uh, um, where does he fit in? Because he's, he's writing an idealized version of reality. Yes, he is. Um. And this was okay, but is it still is it still recognizable? I think it is, and as you know, this was always one of my problems with with the West Wing, which for the most part I've been able to ignore now that I've seen more of it. Uh-huh. Um, but okay, so here we go. I've said it before, so here I'm. I'll try not to spend too much time on it. Bartlett in the West Wing, played by Martin Sheen, he's the president we all wish we had. Uh-huh. Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. He's a smart guy who makes in, in, uh, informed decisions. Not a perfect guy. Uh-huh. He makes mistakes, but he's a smart guy. You know, he sneaks a cigarette every once in a while, much hey, like our current president. Who doesn't? I mean, me. But <laughs> still. Um, but yeah, he. I mean, he makes well-informed decisions. He doesn't go from his gut. He is the ideal of what we would want a president to be. Is that's that was the idea? And I remember when when you when the show was still on, you were watching it, and I would watch. And I, and all I saw was, oh, the Democrats are doing it right and the Republicans are doing it wrong. That's all I saw because I only saw a few episodes. As you watch, you see, oh, there's a lot more nuance than that. Uh-huh. But there is a character during the, the presidential uh, election where Bartlett goes up against this guy. The character's name is Robert Ritchie, played very well by James Brolin, uh-huh. really well by James Brolin. And he is clearly supposed to be the stand-in for George W. Bush. Yeah. He goes from his gut. He kind of has a cowboy kind of thing to him. 
Um, and he's he wants, anti-intellectual. Want, yes, just the way he puts it. And so it's like, oh, okay, he's supposed to be like Baseball George Baseball is, that's how where regular people get their entertainment. Exactly, as opposed to an opera. Yeah. Um, very interesting. That It brings up some inter- – it uses the character to bring up some interesting questions about politics in our world. But the problem I had with it was, you know what? Here's the thing. If you're going to idealize this whole world, you don't get to – you don't get to inject our the the cold hard reality that we all live in when it comes to the character that doesn't agree with you. Just like it's like oh, so you have the the ideal in the democrat, and it's not about democrat or republican. It's about just the opposition. Uh-huh. It's like in in our hero role, you have the ideal, what we all wish we had. In the opposition, you have what we do have, and just like oh, why not have but, the ideal on both sides? But we do. It just doesn't have. Just Richie isn't the ideal, but there's uh, every almost every episode of The West Wing has at least one intelligent Republican. You know, think about the episode seventeen people in which oh that's a gr- yeah that's a great episode. I think we've talked about it on the show before and yeah. this specific thing in which uh, Ainsley Hayes convincingly talked me, the viewer, mm-hmm. out of supporting the uh, the Equal Rights Amendment. Yeah, like me, yeah. a liberal. <laughs> and written by a liberal yeah and he put smart words in a smart character's yeah. mouth and she said it with the same passion and uh and uh you know ridiculous grandiloquence mm-hmm. that you find in every other aaron sorkin character and she made a good point and i think my and again that again like uh i was watching the richie stuff when it was going on so it was several years ago and i hadn't seen as many episodes but I think the way to sell it is to make it clear that if the character of Richie is meant to be like, oh, the worst that a politician could have, then what you should try to do is have some other Republican characters like an Ainsley Hayes say like, oh, I really wish he wasn't my nominee yeah. or something like that. Okay, but instead, it's represented, he's the best they have to offer. And Bartlett's the best the Democrats have to offer. See how well, the, you know, see how much better they are, you know. Which and it's one of the reasons why I love the later episodes where you have Jimmy Smith being the Democratic candidate and Alan Alda being the Republican candidate, and both of them are equally smart. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really well done uh, season. But um, how does the writing stack up? I well, as you know, I have certain problems with Sorkin, um, which I've been able to ignore because, as you mentioned, but he is goes it, for. Is there a jarring shift? I'm saying between the no. end of season four and the beginning of season five. No, there isn't. They're, are they trying to replicate? Aaron Sorkin. They throw in they they throw in probably two Sorkin Sorkinian things per episode, <laughs> and then after a while, depending on the content of the episode, uh-huh. they won't have as many. But and of course, that's where the brilliance of the acting comes in is they sell it. Okay, and and it's fine, and you you, you don't really even notice that much. Okay, well that's this is not the discussion we're having. Yeah, yeah, uh, on the show. But let's talk about where Aaron Sorkin or William Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, I'm comparing them. Um, <laughs> Where they fit into this. Mm-hmm. What is recognizable? Not just the fact that the Oval Office and the West Wing looks like the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. What is recognizable? And I'm going to answer my own question because I love when people do that. Okay. Uh, I've been talking too long anyway, Dave. Go, go ahead. Um, it's, a, it's well, I, I guess it's, it's about idealism. Mm-hmm. Not just, like, political idealism, but just... The ideal of what you wish you could be and what you wish the world was. It's sort of the um, uh, – what's, what's the saying? The, the, the wit of the staircase? You know, have you heard of – the idea that uh, something happens and you can't think of Oh, the wooden staircase. Yeah, yeah. What's that? The wooden staircase. The, the wit of the staircase. The wit of the staircase. Oh, the wooden staircase is what I've uh – I've heard that it's like the creaking staircase as you're slinking away after you said the wrong thing and you think of the right thing. Maybe it is the wooden staircase and I've been saying oh, okay. the wit of the staircase. Maybe I time. heard it as wooden staircase and it's actually the wit of the staircase. Go anyway, ahead. Anyway, but this idea that you're in a situation, you couldn't think of anything to say, and as you're walking up to bed that night, you think of the perfect thing to say. Yeah. Well, Aaron Sorkin's characters all live in reality where they thought of that perfect thing mm-hmm. at the right time. Yeah. Uh, and... That's, uh, it's, 
And that's why I think West Wing and, and Sports Night are more escapism than, you know, Avatar or whatever. Yeah. Uh, because we really all wish we could be like that. Yeah. You know, because if you disagree with what Sam Seaborn says in the West Wing, you would still live in the world where you'd be able to disagree just as uh, as well as he can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so that's where I think the that that that's that's sort of, I guess, I don't think heightened reality is the right word for it. It's uh, it's one like could a, it's say like it's like a like parallel reality. It's like an alternate universe where yeah. ev- it's that's really close to ours, but everyone's I go fifteen IQ points smarter. <laughs> Yeah. So once again, we come back to this idea that there's something recognizable about mm-hmm. that because it's what we wish we could be. Yeah. It's very Capra-esque. Um, uh-huh. I mean, it, I think even in The American President, he sort of uh, makes reference to that. But uh, yeah, and I think I think the best way to, to sell it is that while everybody is a little smarter and a little more clever than, than we are, uh-huh. uh, we the viewer, um, they still have the same emotions. That's how he – and of course, I mean – the reality that where they're just walking around and it all looks like the world we live in, but the emotions are real. When a character discovers something, he doesn't, he may not act in the most noble way. He may feel personally insulted and, and react as such. And that to me is, is the, the core of the, of the show. Um, because you realize, ah, yes. Okay. Now I can relate to this person because this is, that's that's the recognizable element to me yeah. is that just because you know and i guess this in a way this goes all the way back to uh the beginning of the episode just because you're just because you're really smart doesn't mean you're going to love everything that is considered smart just because you're really smart doesn't mean you have total control over your emotions uh-huh. you know and so it's it's that kind of deeper understanding that sorkin has that i appreciate in that People, character, main characters make mistakes all the time. Yeah, and uh, just because you're as smart as uh, Toby on yeah. the West Wing doesn't mean that in that episode in Excelsis Deo, when he goes under the un- underpass and is with the homeless people, he's completely nervous and out of sorts. Ex- he's exactly, sm- he's like the smartest guy on the planet. Yeah, and he's a little uh, uh, on edge and yeah. doesn't, as you know would what, be. doesn't know what to do. Exactly. Um, that's 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 uh, a lot of people's favorite episode. Hmm. You and I can talk about my favorite episode another time because okay. it might actually be uh, in a season you haven't seen. And we should uh, probably wrap up the show anyway. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah and it's uh, and that's the thing. I feel like we've only touched the surface, and there's so many other examples that you can give um, because there's arguments to be made. Like I mentioned, Little Miss Sunshine, mm-hmm. saying like, "Well, people, this wouldn't happen. This this many coincidences couldn't happen." And then I've heard people say like, "Yeah, but it's not supposed to be." this uh-huh. and it's just like and so there's a lot of little nuances where you can say that just because much like Sor- sorkin's universe just because it looks like ours and people dress the same and and find themselves in kind of a similar situation emotionally doesn't mean it's necessarily supposed to be exactly our reality and so it's uh there are a lot of you know kind of invisible lines uh, that uh, it's very easy to cross as you're talking about these. But, uh, but yeah, uh, you're welcome to – see, look at this. You're welcome to discuss this topic on the forum. Yeah. Um, bring up the fact that we didn't bring up Italian neorealism. Yeah. Yeah. But just because it's in the title, doesn't, uh, Italian neorealism is an important movement in film, but it's mm. it's not specifically realistic. Yeah. They were, they were striving for something, and the way in which they tried to execute it uh, is the realistic part. You know, by yeah. casting non-actors and stuff like that. But again, but I mean, they're they're casting non-actors. Uh, I think, I think it's more deconstructionist than it is realistic mm-hmm. because you're stripping away the artifice. But an actor's gonna be more adept at appearing natural right. in front of a camera than a non-actor. Right. So there's there's a very there's an intent to the yeah. sometimes wooden performances of neorealism. Yeah. Uh, anyway. All right. We got our neorealist discussion out of there. There we go. <laughs> we had to do it. We should do an entire episode about it, but I haven't seen nearly enough. Um, no. but, uh, now real quick, uh, as I mentioned before, before we go into the final things, go to battleshippretension.com, go to the store, buy yourself a copy of reservations. I know that you haven't seen it. And so why would you buy something you haven't seen? Cause I say it's good. David says it's great. 
He loved it. Uh-huh. I was in it and enjoyed it a great deal. Um, and uh, and it's just a good way to support a uh, uh, friend of the show, Jason Eakin, uh, and uh, and various other people that were involved. Um, so yeah, uh, go and go and do that. Lots of fun. Now then, David. all right. So as always, you can find us at battleshipretention.com or in iTunes. You can email us, David mm-hmm. at battleshipretention.com or Tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can. Follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thepretension, or you can follow Tyler on Twitter at twitter.com slash morelessons, which is the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at morethanonelesson.com or in iTunes. And as, uh, as always, uh, I tripped up there. As okay. al- we got to take the whole thing over. All right. <laughs> as always, you can find my other podcast, the weekly television re- review podcast, previously on at previouslyonshow.com or in iTunes. And I will say it's it's uh, pretty likely that there will not be an episode next week. Yeah, we're going to try. If we can get it together, we might post the, the audio from the live episode. Yeah. But that, that will be a bonus episode. Um, and uh, we'll make it up by doing two the following week, probably. Yeah. We find ourselves out of town at the same time. Yeah, and it'll happen again in October. Yeah. But so. the, the two the following week, one of those is going to be a doozy. It sure will. Very exciting. But yes. uh, you'll have to stay tuned for that. I mean, not stay tuned. I mean... Don't this go ep- anywhere. This episode's going to end. <laughs> and, uh, you can go about your, your life. But uh, yeah, so thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.